maybe we'll have a little se- section here where we'll talk a bit about the behind the scenes stuff because there are some like interesting little but we won't go too much into it because we're more of a text analytical show than a let's shit talk people show. We're, we're both those things but anyhow <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola was the producer of this and was basically just the powers that be behind this film. And he also made Bram Stoker's Dracula Mm -hmm. uh, a couple years earlier. Now, he had originally wanted that to be, like, this gothic trilogy of, like, uh, Dracula, Frankenstein, and something about the Wolfman, and he was going to direct all of those. But in the process of making Bram Stoker's Dracula, he just sort of tapped himself out with the gothic because that film took ages to make and honestly I think like the behind the scenes um video and documentaries like about that film are more interesting than the film itself as a recommendation I've but, never um, seen that film or know anything about it so honestly just watch like documentaries cannot. about how it was made I think it's a lot more interesting than the film itself to be perfectly honest but I think if you go into this movie knowing that like it stemmed from that. So, yeah, he was sort of tapped out and didn't want to do any more gothic, so then he got someone else to make this one. But if you know that that's kind of the backstory, then you would wander into this being very suspicious of the use of the um, author's name in the title as a sign of fidelity. Mm -hmm. Because if you've seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, you'll know... Bram Stoker's Dracula, it is not. (laughs) It is Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula, 100%. Like, it's really ham, hammers up, that's not a saying. Um, It plays into the Mina Dracula love story thing. Mm. Like, it's a love story, and that's not what the book is at all. Like, it's faithful to the book in that it does follow all the same story beats and has all the same characters and whatnot, but it very much is its own thing. And Mm -hmm. I think this film, I think, maybe struggles because the creators were a bit caught between the idea that they had to be faithful and that, you know, they didn't want to be or that it's hard to be. Because mm-hmm. I, yeah, both like Dracula and this film, I think are particularly hard um, stories to like adapt into film and have be like 100% faithful just because, I don't know, it's just how like s- classic stories are structured. They don't really work as Hollywood films because they don't have the action beats at exactly the right points you need for like a 90 minute movie. Mm. But anyhow, so like, Francis Ford Coppola was just like, oh, I cannot direct another one of these fuckers. <laughs> that nearly killed me. So he somehow got Kenneth Branagh to do it. And I believe they got Kenneth to do it because at this point, uh, Kenneth was in his early 30s and he'd sort of made a name for himself making these really bombastically grandiose um, Shakespeare films and sort of changing people's perception on like whether you could turn Shakespeare into film and have them be financial successes. And he'd done this, like, at a very early age, like, in his 20s. Like, he'd already written his autobiography by the time he was 27. So, like, you know, he was a big deal and, like, pretty competent. And they were just like, okay, this classy motherfucker will be great at, like, making this gothic um, fancy film. But a lot of producers were a bit suspicious of this. And they were like, no, this is, like, a Hollywood film. 
he's you don't make it too fancy and so I think the result of of that is that this film is a bit has no fucking idea what it wants to be um tone wise Mm. because it it's in a way, it's very authentically Kenneth Branagh because he did have a lot of freedom with this project and he is a very, like, grandiose, bombastic director and that's what this is. But you get the sense that it is kind of pulled between um, being a more psychologically thoughtful film and being sort of an action Hollywood film. Uh, at least to me, I think it's there's a bit of, like, a... Mm. It's a bit too loud and it's I don't know if that's because the people making it were pressured to sort of be thinking that it had to be or if that's just how Kenneth wanted it to be. Yeah, I think I think what you're saying about the tone of it being sort of too um, action-y is mm. really, like, because the novel is not, like, at its heart, it is not about the action in any way. It just... Mm. It's just about sort of ideas and thinking. Um, Mm. And I think if you look at Kenneth Branagh's, like, body of work, like when we say he's sort of bombastic or dramatic, it's usually not... Yeah, he did make, like, Henry V, but it's, like, usually not, like, bombastic fight scenes. It's more, it's just very... Like, he loves, like, wide space and sort of a very classical form of acting mm. and so you know it's it is more of a psychological sort of like he, he's very camp let's just say that he is but like, and I think he's so camp and, and um he's also really I think he does poorly with subtext um yeah. he, so what if the, I will do to be or not to be staring at a mirror <laughs> so holding a knife <laughs> so one of the um, one of uh, Kenneth Branagh's movies I saw recently was um, All Is True, which is his, like, sh- later year Shakespeare <laughs> biopic, essentially, with, like, all the um, best British actors. Um, mm. And it's just, like, he just erases any sort of idea of subtext from Shakespeare's life at all. Like, you know everything is sort of text and I think Mm. that does that's not conducive to exploring the ideas of the novel I think because they do sort of require a bit more contemplation um even though it's all very sort of mannered Mm. in the way that you know the creature and Victor deliver their speeches and are very like open about I guess narrating what motivates them and things like that. Mm. It sort of still requires an like a more sense of in, in like internality. Yeah. Sorry, that interiority is yeah. what I'm trying <laughs> to say. Internality. I like yeah. that word though. Like a sense of interiority where mm. you know, especially for the creature, I think you I miss that um idea of him learning sort of more gradually and then yeah i i think the creature is given the shitty end of the stick in this film Mm. i completely forgot what the saying was but the short end of the stick (laughs) (laughs) i i think 
I think the, like, saving grace of the creature is that it's played very well by Robert De Niro. Mm. Rather than... And, I mean, the thing with that is... So as, you know, we quoted at the beginning that the screenwriter really hated the film because he believed he wrote a very sort of subtle script. But, I mean, I don't see subtlety in this script, to be quite frank with you. But he didn't like that it was such a loud movie Mm. and he was very proud of what he'd written. Um, From what I've learnt through reading some bits and pieces, um, Kenneth Branagh did do some uncredited rewriting of the script or, like, requested um, some changes and some expansion, and I'm not sure how different the, you know, the script of the final project that was, you know, released is to the original script. Mm -hmm. All I know is that um, Elizabeth's animated corpse setting herself on a fire was definitely Kenneth Branagh's insertion. I don't know if the her coming back to life at all was or not, just the very dramatic violent end definitely was Kenneth. I also know he wanted to amp up the um, family aspect of the film, hmm. which I think was actually a really good idea. Mm-hmm. So he wanted to yeah, amp up the sort of family angle and also I think Elizabeth's role in the film. Mm-hmm. He thought that was very important to the story. And I 100% agree and I think the family aspect of the film is actually the best part of it. Mm. Funnily enough, uh, Francis Ford Coppola, when he saw the final cut of the film before it was released, he sort of said, you need to cut the first half an hour which is all, like, the family stuff, I'm Mm. presuming. And Kenneth was just like, no. And then Coppola pretty much publicly denounced the film and, like, wanted nothing, no association with it Mm. because I just thought it was trash, which, again, I think you and me find is funny because we think the first half an hour or the first family bits is probably the best part of the movie because... I think it actually expands on the novel in, like, productive ways. Like, again, there's no subtlety to it at all. No. But, like, it, you get sense of, I guess, the stakes more so than you do in the novel because the novel is more philosophical. But yeah. you really see in, the you know, the first bit of this film with all the family stuff, you see what um, as is at risk to lose because... And, you know, fantastic actors always help, but, like, these people seem to really enjoy each other's company. They, like, love each other. They care about each other. And they still do after tragedy happens, after the mother dies, there's still a lot of love there. Yeah. And so you get a sense of what Victor is, what he's fighting for and also what he's sacrificing and what he is eventually, you know, loses yeah. because of his ambition. And so... I think it, it was... Yeah, I think you mm-hmm. put that really well because it's Thanks. such a great setup. Um, and you, like, really feel the emotions there. It's so, like, real. It's not... Like, it is dramatic and sort of hits you over the head, but mm. it's not sort of unrealistically so, I think. Um, you do feel that love between the family members. I think where it goes wrong is that after such a good setup, it really... Um, because the way they try to ca- characterise Victor and... Elizabeth and but especially Victor and his relationship with his family it really kind of goes down the sink like it's it is such a great setup and what you're expecting is that his hubris and his arrogance and like his moral failings will get in the way of that idyllic family existence right 
but it doesn't go there or it it like never shows that being taken away and so that's why I think it's a good setup but it just fails yeah um it kind of throws the rest of the movie into a poorer light because it is so good Mm. um and you're right like it definitely expands more on the book it feels more real than the book because the book is so limited in describing what their family life is actually like. Mm. Um, I Yeah. No, go. I think another really good, well, that's more of an expansion, but I think mm. a very good change the movie makes, and this, I can tie this to a sort of a broader point we might want to discuss with this film, but I think uh, one change I really like is that, is what they do with Henry Clavell, mm-hmm. and that he's not a childhood friend, he's like a college friend, mm. and then that, it, that I think translates the expansion of the childhood years over into the college years and makes that seem much more real because he has a friend to, like, work against. And also there's more is made of the um, relationship with Waldman. Mm-hmm. And I think you can love or hate the fact that Waldman sort of uh, had previously worked on the same thing and that Victor's kind of, like, just expanding on someone else's work. <laughs> I, don't, I think that's fine. Plagiarist. I <laughs> I I don't really have a problem with that. I think it's good, I guess, shortcut storytelling in a way. Mm. But I think it's really important in film, particularly, you know, if it is such a sort of large story and you don't quite have the nuance or subtlety to sort of tell it well to have other players around for the protagonist to work against mm. or to express these things with and how I want to attach this to something else is that um, I've read a couple times people talking about this film as a very postmodern interpretation of Frankenstein in the sense that it is trying to be faithful to the text, but it's also using uh, cues and intertextuality with um, previous Frankenstein films. Mm-hmm. So um, in this sense, Henry Clavel is kind of an Igor stand-in or what's his name, Fritz in as he's actually called Mm -hmm. someone for the protagonist to work against and so that the audience can know what's going on in his head and what he's doing Mm -hmm. and I think, and there's little things like that everywhere, like I think the very idea of learning from a master who'd already attempted actually came from another Frankenstein film too I was reading about in this really good essay that is sort of talking about I'll look up the author as I'm saying this because it is a very good essay and I need to give her credit because she's great uh Julie Sloan Brennan Mm -hmm. and the essay is called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein question mark Kenneth Branagh and keeping promises and so it's really just sort of looking into the idea of uh fidelity in this movie and how it changes certain things in order to reinterpret Ooh, things crashing below me, reinterpret themes to suit um, the sensibilities of a modern audience. I don't 100% agree with everything she says, Mm -hmm. but she makes a lot of really interesting points. And basically she does draw attention to the fact that this film does use a lot of cues from previous Frankenstein movies. So, like, you know, the presence of an Igor-esque character... Um, I think 
yeah, there were other, like, little things that were key points. And I think even moving away from whatever the fuck she said, you can see just by watching that there are things in this movie that are clear um, indicators of the 1931 movie. So, like, just the use of electricity to create the creature is you know, very much just from that movie. Mm. Um, also, yeah, like, he's... The creature comes, sort of comes to life in a cauldron, which is very much the first... The very first film version of from 1910. Mm. That's I think is kind of an allusion to that. And, yeah, and even the, like, the use of uh, Elizabeth as the female creature at the end is very much uh, harking back to um, Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. So, like... This film, though it says it wants to, though I think Brent Kenneth Bryant specifically said many times he wants to step away from the previous um, tellings of this story to get back to sort of the original roots and the original spirit, he still uses a lot of very overt cues and like film language and cultural language to sort of reference these films because by this stage there is a very strong cultural lexicon about what Frankenstein is Mm -hmm. and yeah you should probably say something (laughs) (laughs) otherwise I'll just ramble on forever no I think what you're saying is right it does but I think what that's signifying is just how embedded into culture those ideas, those visual ideas are. Mm. Um, I kind of disagree that Clavel... I mean, I can see that he is the... He can be read as the Igor's stand-in, and I guess he does play that role, but to me, I think he doesn't fully remind me of that. Um, That's just me, but... Yeah. Yeah, that might actually not have been from that I don't think that was from that essay. I think that was just my brain making a connection. Okay. But I think I'm I mean he's not he's not like an assistant or like a clear um interpretation of that so much as just I think the need to have Victor talk to someone while this is happening. Otherwise I don't know, it, yeah. would, it would get boring if you didn't have Clavel. Also, like, it's he's just a very good character. Like, he's very funny. I think like, he's, he, yeah, he, he brings life to this movie. <laughs> he actually, yeah, works well as a character and um, plays off Victor very well. And he also plays that sort of caring role, which Clavel does in mm. the novel. But obviously, he doesn't have that sort of, um, he doesn't die and he doesn't yeah. have that sort of strong emotional connection to Victor. Um, which I guess it's fine, um, but it is a change. Um, but I think it's okay as a change. Uh, it mm. works for the medium that it's in. Um, yeah, I think I think his connection with Victor is, like, sacrificed to really lean into the Elizabeth-Victor relationship, which for this film I think is fine. Yeah, but, okay, can we get into the Elizabeth-Victor relationship Okay. Now, um, and uh, there's a Beth Victor relationship <laughs> in this movie. It's kind of weird, but pretty romantic because they're probably sleeping together while they're doing this. Yeah. <laughs> the um, oh, <laughs> did I just distract you with my song? Yes, you did. Um, no, shall I keep singing while you're trying to remember it? 
No. So, okay. so the other thing I wanted to say before we get into that about Clavel and Victor as well is that one of the key things about Victor in the novel, and this ties in mm. with what I'm saying, what I was trying to say with like the family setup, is mm. that a lot of Victor's um, like the point of his character and his friendship with I almost said relationship with Clavel in the novel is that he isolates himself so much in his pursuit for science, mm. right? And I think that is shown to be the great hubris of his, you know, his whole conceit Being. of yeah. con- like creating the creating life artificially is that whole idea of he's above everyone and so when you have a sort of fellow student with him that Clavel plays um in the film it sort of undermines that um that he's sort of removing himself from humanity as a whole and he's really kind of doing something transgressive it feels less like that more sort of like Mm-hmm. Oh, he he is just two, you know, medical stu- school students, and two they're working. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> and they're working on like a extra credit project with this random professor. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think I think it is worth pointing out that um, Victor does try to like drag Clavel into the experiments with him, and Clavel's resistant because mm. Clavel's role in this is very much the voice of reason like he sort of knows what's going on but he doesn't want a part in it and I think that's what kind of I mean it's it's it is flawed because it's kind of like I don't you know it's like how could this like really great like caring friend let his fellow classmate and friend like get this far like you know mm. it, it does happen like you can't save people if they don't want to be saved but it's not explored enough or there's no scene of like um Clavel being like oh fuck I like I can't help you you're not you're you're too far this is going too much because again that scene is given to elizabeth and i just think it's not like at no point do you feel like victor has gone too far i think that's Mm. really the crux of the adaptation is that they try to make victor a very sympathetic um yeah empathetic person and I just don't think that really works with the story um, <laughs> because Victor is not that. I Yeah, should we now step into the just the, the broader issue of, like, Victor being too nice? Yeah, okay, let's do that. So, yeah, so this stems from, and I sort of referenced this before, but um, Kenneth entering this project wanted to maybe I should find the quote I wrote down now nah, I'll paraphrase it it's fine he he wanted to take a step back from the previous um adaptations and I guess this cultural idea of the mad scientist that had become very connected to the Frankenstein story I personally think less so from the 1931 adaptation itself Mm. but through all like the cartoons and jokes and stuff that happened in between Mm -hmm. because we did we've so we've discussed the 1931 film and we've sort of talked about how Victor doesn't actually seem that insane in that movie like there's that moment where he's screaming it's alive it's alive it's alive but that's kind of just this, like, really manic moment of, like, excitement. And for the rest of the film, he seems very sane and 
normal. But from that very iconic scene, you then have this idea of the mad scientist that's very associated with this text. Mm-hmm. And Kenneth and I think probably the screenwriter and just people involved wanted to take a step back from that, from the idea of the mad scientist, and instead create a character who is very sane and doing this very transgressive stuff for a very good reason to try to make I guess to try to humanize this idea and to I guess you know make it less about this hubris and make it this very human film about a person who has had such terrible grief and just really wants and he's driven by very I think he's driven by grief and I guess a very moral um desires to like help people and make it so that people don't have to experience loss and death Mm -hmm. so like that's where they were coming from they wanted to step away from the idea of just human hubris going too far Mm. and instead look at like I guess how very human emotions can like push us towards just making really bad decisions or like yeah I guess looking at how very human people can do very in human things, I, mm. does it achieve that? I don't think so, but that's what it was trying to do. Yeah, I think if, as you say, that's what their intention was, I think that's interesting. Um, <laughs> like, I, I don't think I read Victor in such a uh, compassionate way, but yeah, I think I- you can. It's not sort of beyond the realm of possibility. And, but I think if that's what they were trying to do, they didn't really emphasize the grief enough, um, just as they mm. didn't emphasize hubris enough. Like, it's just very strange. I just don't get a great, I don't know if it's just the movie, the acting, or the script. Like, it just. I just don't get an idea that he's motivated by grief. Like, I can see mm. where that reading could come from. Um, but to me, I don't emotionally feel his grief. Um, and I don't feel his loss. So then I struggle to comprehend why he's doing the things that he's doing. And for most of the movie, I'm just like, well, why are you making the stupidest decision Mm. that you possibly could in this situation? It's just, I don't know, like, I just don't fully connect with it. And maybe that's just me as a viewer, but I feel like the movie doesn't help you to as well. Mm. Oh, yeah. I found in my notes, like, what I was trying to get Mm. at, and it's written a bit more eloquently, probably because it's it's plagiarized. Um, but Branner creates a different kind of moral ambiguity. Film Victor knows exactly what he's about and is driven to do it anyway, convinced that the ends justify the means. So they're trying to create a different kind of moral ambiguity mm. than the one in the book. So, yeah, so what she sort of is talking about in that essay is how the broader themes of the mo- the novel are kind of, like, localised mm. and, like, altered to suit this film and, I guess, to suit, you know, what this or the claims is um, moral sensibilities mm-hmm. of the time. Mm-hmm. And I kind of get where she's going with that, but also 
don't fully buy into it. Because, mm. like, I... I don't know. I think the way the novel is written and the way Victor is, you know, presented is is very human. Like people people do do things out of hubris and out of arrogance. I think it is a good decision to like ground it in more in the grief and mm. like attempt to do it that way. I think that's very implicit in the novel, but I think that is a very good way to ground the character in film. And I think it's done reasonably personally I think it's done reasonably well here in this one. But it goes too far in trying to present... Um, and it goes too far in trying to present Victor as, like, the tragic hero of this story. And it's kind of like, no, you're actually missing the point you're, you're trying to make in pointing out very real forms of immorality and, like, flaws in human beings when... Because I think yeah. that's what they're going for. It's kind of like, you know, people can do things out of like really bad, out of really good motivations. Mm, like, but they're they still bad things, yeah, right? And I think that's what it's going for. Mm. But it and it almost gets there, but it just makes Victor way too, um, not likable, but too sympathetic, and it doesn't let him be a flawed person because they're just like, no, he's not flawed. He's just grieving, and it's like, no, he can. You can go further and make him an asshole. If you make the audience empathise with someone doing bad things, that's much more evocative. That's much more meaningful. Mm. Fuck. So, like, yeah, let's go into, like, what they do to make this fucker more likeable or more sympathetic. <laughs> so, like... <laughs> yeah. So that's why um, when the creature first comes to life, uh, Victor doesn't reject him straight away. Right. And the creators, you know, claim that they thought about how to do this very well. And so, like, he doesn't reject it, tries to help it stand. Two bros standing in amniotic fluid, <laughs> whatever I said before. Well, and then he gets sort of tangled up and yeah. then Victor's just like, oh, what have I done? And is sort of grieved and is, like writing in his journal like oh it's just sort of this is shit and it's it really is just sort of like no you tried to make that a softer moment but like I I don't understand why he's rejected that thing like you're framing it that um you're framing it in a way that like you know it's kind of like oh this was a bad idea this thing is sort of like weakly and not human and suffering and I've you know I haven't helped anyone but you've also, like, set it up that this character is very sanely creating this and, like, the uh, the ends justify the means and all that. So he's very... He's not wrapped up in a fever dream of, like, becoming God. Mm. He is very aware of what he's doing and how despicable it is, but, like, he's got an ends in sight and he, so he doesn't reject how ugly this thing is. But then suddenly he does and it's like... Why? Yeah, it really Why? I think in in trying to make him better, it makes him seem more cowardly, right? Mm. And sort of despicable in his own way, more so than I don't know, 
well, not more so than in the book, Victor, but you still don't like him. I think they try to do everything they can to make you like him, but Mm. at the end, like you said, there's parts of his personality that you can't reconcile. And I think they try to make Victor more like the creature's role in the novel because Mm. the creature's role was to be this person who does bad things but is ultimately still sympathetic because you see the world from his perspective and it makes sense from his perspective right Mm. whereas with victor you can still see that what he's doing is bad but no one in the story itself is able to really call him out call him out on the fact that what he's doing is bad and he himself doesn't realize it. So then he's kind of just portrayed as this good character who's just tortured Mm. for like seemingly no reason, even though there is a reason and the audience sees that. I don't know. I don't know if I'm just saying, putting this very well, but you know, I just don't buy it. It's just not a coherent character. Mm. And because the one person who does call him out is Elizabeth, and she outright says, like, oh, like, a promise from you is meaningless, and, like, do you ever think of anyone or anything but yourself? But she sort of says this after he's gone to speak with the creature and he's come back and he's like, okay, we need to delay the wedding for, like, you know, just a couple weeks, I've got to do something, and won't tell her what it is. And I don't know, I think thematically it's just very unclear whether this is kind of, you know, a tragic misunderstanding or like where we're supposed to feel sorry for him or if we're supposed to agree with Elizabeth that yeah he's a dick because I mean logically as like someone us who's you know engaged with both the book and this film we would say like oh my god just tell Elizabeth the truth right and then I don't know work together or maybe not work together but like you know just tell her the truth yeah like Yeah, but I think the thing is that she recognised... Like, in the book, I think Elizabeth doesn't recognise what Victor's done, right? She doesn't know anything Mm. about what he's done, so she's unable to really sanction him for it. Whereas here, she justifiably is like, you did bad, okay? But then she's still like, (laughs) I'm still going to marry you. So Mm. what was the point of her sort of seeing that he was acting selfishly you know it's just like doesn't make sense to me yeah no the other bit I just like can't wrap my head around is the when Victor sort of gives up on like he gives up on making the female creature and then goes and marries Elizabeth like I do not understand the jump between that because of course in the book you've got the destruction of the female creature and he's just like nope 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 no, in this one, um, the creature, well, he does bring him Justine's body and he's just like, make me a woman. And he's like, does it have to be her? And she's, he's like, just materials, remember what you said. And Victor's like, fuck, I did say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, see, this movie would be so much better as a musical and it will later become a musical in Frankenstein the Musical. There are a lot of similarities between this movie and that musical. Number one, Justine being made into the female creature. Um, moving on. <laughs> K- 
Can you sense my lack of caring from the other side of the microphone? Hey, intertextuality is an interesting thing to consider. I was the one who was talking about intertextuality in all our other episodes. (laughs) And you didn't care about it then. (laughs) Because your form of intertextuality is just like, okay, now I'm going to discuss this Blake poem for 20 minutes. (laughs) Fine. Whatever. Do you feel called out? (laughs) No, because Blake is my bait and I will not apologize for (laughs) loving him. Nor should you. Um, Where was I, Frankenstein? Yes. So I don't understand... Yeah, he shows him Justine and he's just like, Ugh. and then he, in the next scene he like runs to Elizabeth and he's just like, please don't leave me, babe. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, really, I don't understand like what exactly triggered him to be like, hmm, I just got threatened. You know what I'm going to do? Not do the thing the person threatening me wants to do. And damn be it. Like, I don't know. He's just so dumb. I think it's just like, well, at least in the book, Victor sort of thought through his actions and their consequences. Yeah, he at least, like, you know, packed a gun and he was just like, okay, I'm going to die on my own terms. See ya, Lizzie. Oh, shit, wait. Yeah, oh, it's, no. it's just... Oh, I just but, don't, I just can't really pinpoint why I hate him so much <laughs> in this movie. But he's also, like, really boring. Because, you know, like, sometimes mm. there's something really interesting about uh, actually, like, morally complex or dubious well, character. He's not morally complex. Well. He should be, but he isn't. Well, but that's he's, the complexity yeah. of his character. I think it's that he's not complex. <laughs> that, that he should be feeling lots of human things, but he just mm. doesn't, right? I think that's what makes him really interesting in the novel. Okay, the novel. I thought you were talking about the film. Oh, no, no, no. Like, I, that's what I'm saying, like, in the film, okay. he's just not complex. He's mm. just, like, dull and, you know, he's supposed yeah. to be motivated by grief, but isn't like yeah and then yeah. he doesn't oh, we haven't talked about like the most like shitty thing they do shitty change they make to make victor more likable okay well we have but yeah it's back to the lynching scene did you have anything else you wanted to say sorry interrupt you. no no that's that's about it yeah i wanted okay. to mention the lynching scene as well you go okay so um Frank, Victor, Elizabeth, and, you know, the fam at home being like, hmm, it's shit that William's dead. And then Mama Moritz, Justine's mum, is just like, so I can't find Justine. I think she's still out looking for William. Can we please go looking for her? And they're like, oh, yeah, shit, we should probably do that. And then, like, um, someone knocks on the door. It's like a police chief. And he's just like, we found the culprit. Tis Justine's. And shows the lock and blah, blah, blah. Pretty much like what it is in the book. So the the squad goes down to, like, the local courthouse and where we hear, like, you know, a mob is a Bruin and they're just like, oh, shit. And then someone's like, oh, no, the villagers, they're, like, really angry that this woman, you know, killed a kid and this is a lynching mob. And they're like, oh, shit. 
Anyhow, so yeah, then Mop, like, lynches her. And, yeah, and so Victor's guilt in Justine's, you know, death is completely alleviated. Mm -hmm. I mean, he still sort of does have this moment of, like, I'm sorry, Justine. But, like, really, it's just sort of to serve him being a sympathetic character. But, like, he's no longer responsible for her death because his responsibility in the novel was the fact that he did nothing to save her. Mm -hmm. Or, like, he didn't try to save her. In this, he sort of does. He's just like, no, do not do that. He kind of had no power or agency here, whereas he had, like, sort of the ability to um, save Justine in the novel. And he could have Mm. if he was, like, a more moral person. (laughs) But, yeah, yeah, in this one, he, like, having that taken away from him, it really, you know, it sanitizes his character a lot, Mm. I would say. Yeah, I do wonder if it was um, written that way, intending to take away Victor's guilt or blamability Mm. in the matter or if it was just kind of like to quicken up the story because like Mm. I knew for this particular film you couldn't have done the court scene because it is like a pretty snappy action packety type of thing so like I think that would have like really showing like the full courtroom or anything would have really like slowed down the pace of the film so like a part of me wants to believe, mm. but I think that like they did it for pacing. Been, but even, I think it's both. Even if they cut the courtroom scene, like they could have made it so you know, like Justine was convicted mm. and then she was before the judge, right? And then yeah. Victor could have said who actually killed William, but he doesn't. You know, like there's ways yeah. you could do it um, quickly without having it take away like that possibility mm. of his um saving her um so i think it's quite deliberate that they chose yeah. to do that and as it stands he doesn't um even know it was the creature until after justine has been killed right like, he doesn't suspect it's the creature at all until like much later and the creature just just like hey meet me on the sea of ice and victor's like fuck yeah i he think dead. i think that's definitely another point where Because in the... I think that's another point where Victor actually is made more sympathetic because in the novel, he kind of immediately realises that the creature will be, you know, has escaped and will be... will come back to haunt him, essentially. Mm. Like, he's constantly haunted by ideas of the creature, but in this, he doesn't even think of it... Like, he just thinks um, he's died. So... Mm it's sort of like even worse like (laughs) I don't know he just uh, he's the worst deadbeat dad (laughs) (laughs) you're being deadbeat Victor no I mean I think like uh, this is just also like a general point but I do also think like Kenneth Branagh playing Victor is Which too I don't think old. we've actually mentioned yet. Yeah, he's too old, and that doesn't. It just it doesn't help anything in this situation. No, because like, he's like the mm. point of Victor is that he's very young and foolish. I guess. 
Mm. Um, I don't know. Like, I can... Mm, like, when Kenneth is playing, like, 16-year-old Victor, I, I was like, mm, no. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but mm. I think I think he can get away with, like, mid-20s Victor. Yeah, like, look, I genuinely quite like Kenneth Branagh as an actor. I wouldn't have cast him in this, not so much because of age, more because of acting style. I, I don't I don't know. I mean my very like honest answer is like he's just like not very aesthetically pleasing as a crier. And like Victor's <laughs> a big crier. <laughs> that is like genuinely my reason, but I'm trying to come up with like a more reasonable way of explaining that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I I think that's a valid story. I think that's valid. I just don't think he looks like how I picture Victor at all. With his mane of ginger curls and abs. <laughs> like, True Byronic like, hero. Firstly, Victor definitely wouldn't have abs because yeah, no. he's like a scrawny nerd who's in his lab all day. Um, <laughs> yes. But yeah, like Victor's a total nerd. He, I mean, I really like who they cast in Penny Dreadful for Victor. I think mm. he's way more like how I picture Victor. Like, you know, doesn't get out of the house. So slightly <laughs> vampiric looking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Probably has food stains all over his clothes. Mm, I think at the very least he's, like, pretty in, like, sort of maybe effeminate, angelic-y kind of way. Really? Like, he's... I think if you were going on the side of, like, you know, he has attractive qualities, I reckon he's probably, if anything, pretty, but definitely not buff. <laughs> <laughs> he definitely doesn't have abs. Is what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he's he's hitting the gym whenever he's not, um, like in charnel houses cutting up body parts. Oh well, you know, like lifting all those test tubes and. <laughs> to be fair, the the setup of the creation is like pretty taxing, unnecessarily mouse trappy. <laughs> you know, <the> <laughs> yeah, mouse, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is like I, we haven't. <laughs> Go on. No, 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 go. I was going to say, we... we, Fucking hell. (laughs) I was just going to say, we haven't really described the setup of Mm. um, his lab and how the creature is created. It's probably Mm. the most creative take on it, to be fair. Again, it's leaning into the need to make this super action-heavy. But, like, if they had to do it that way, I think they did it the best way they could yeah but why were they random chains hanging from victor's ceiling was this lab like doubling as some sort of um dungeon it's like i don't know because it was just some lady's attic (laughs) but let's just go into a bit more detail so like you've got all these like pulleys and wires and like you've got like a sort of gurney in which you put the thing on and it's made of wire and it's attached to all 
the debris and the metal things on the, and it's just kind of like a whole contraption of just da, 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 like running around <laughs> as like you've got electric eels swimming around in amyolic fluid shit in like this parachute setup that looks like a womb, and then so you've got the eels shot out of the womb into the cauldron chamber where the creature is. Yeah, which is super very... like you know human anatomy parallel i guess because you've got like eel sperm and (laughs) yeah bronze womb and amniotic fluid yeah like it's it's very um much (laughs) it's really over the top yeah is why um, Kenneth Branagh was the perfect choice for Gilderoy Lockhart because you knew exactly what you were going to get out of it and that was a really good choice. It was just like, hey, be the worst version of yourself. (laughs)